Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Industry and government alike have been pondering the new proposed rule on vendor cybersecurity published just a couple of weeks ago. The Defense Department wants to finally get its Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program off the ground, CMMC, and that would impose new requirements on contractors. For one industry view, we turn to the Chief Technology Officer at Fortinet Federal, Felipe Fernandez. Mr. Fernandez, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Well, exactly what does this impose on industry? Because I think depending on how large the company is and whether it's a prime or a sub or a sub of a sub, the requirements vary. Certainly. And I think what the DOD would tell you is it doesn't impose very much in regards to differences from the already existing obligations in DFAR 7012. What the DOD would say is industry has already incurred these costs uh, to implement any security controls that are required to be awarded DOD contracts. However, there are some obligations for certification assessments for organizations seeking level two or level three certification. So I think that's really important to understand. Also, what's going on is organizations need to understand that these assessments, depending on the size of the organization, are going to vary in cost. So anywhere between $100,000 to $20 million, according to DOD estimates. Yes, the assessment and the third party, that whole apparatus is just getting stood up. And so you're going to have to hire somebody to come in and say, yes, what they say they have, they actually have. And that that entity would report that back to DOD. That's right. And the good news on that front is the DOD has made some changes to the assessment process, essentially injecting more assessors into the pool available for industry participants to select for their various assessments. So you're not waiting as a single company for assessors to become available to make you ready to be awarded DOD contracts. You can essentially get an assessor earlier than what was presumed with the earliest ruling. And do the objectives of this whole program apply only to whatever government DOD data that the company might possess, or is it also the company's own data which I guess from which a bad guy could infer what's going on in the government. Well, it's really important to understand that it's about federal contract information and CUI. So it is important for entities to understand exactly how that data traverses their systems to design and really illustrate a workflow for that so they can be audited. And it's really that data that the DOD is concerned about. Because contracting information could also be CUI in some cases, sensitive but unclassified. For example, just to make something up, if an order for a million howitzer shells should come in and the shipment of where they're headed is in that contracting information, that could be valuable to an enemy. That's right. With enough pieces of SCI cobbled together, adversaries can really put together a plan of action and really execute advanced persistent threats against the United States and its interests. And fundamentally, there are certain technical controls you have to have in place that's presumed under CMMC. What are the chief ones? And in your experience, how many companies actually have it in place? For the most part, most organizations are applying these security controls or these practices, as they're called, particularly as they're framed in level one. In level two, it calls out 110 NIST 800-171 
revision to controls or practices. And I think that's also important. This has also been raised as a comment from a lot of the field is that the CMMC interim, uh, not interim ruling, but proposed ruling refers to NIST 800-171 revision two, which is the current standard, but Revision three is on the precipice and about to be released. And that is actually what the DFARS refers to in 7012. So we're looking forward to seeing if the DOD clarifies that once the proposed rule becomes an interim rule or sticking with that. And it may be to make it easier on industry to implement these controls and not have to implement the newer controls from revision three. Because NIST solicits comments and issues revisions kind of on its own schedule, not on DOD's schedule necessarily. Certainly. And we know it could be challenging uh, for industry to adopt the new revision uh, and implement all those controls. Obviously, with more controls, becomes more costly for the assessments. And I think DOD is trying to help industry out. My assessment of it is DOD is trying to help industry out by saying the NIST 800-171 revision 2 is good enough. And we'll see where revision 3 comes into works. Uh, Maybe that comes into future revisions of, of the ruling. We are speaking with Felipe Fernandez. He's chief technology officer for Fortinet Federal. And Fortinet itself is a cybersecurity vendor. And so are there special, I don't know, requirements or impositions for cybersecurity for people selling cybersecurity? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that entities are looking at us to provide them is help with access control, application control, things that allow them to provide or get greater granularity into controlling who, what has access to which information on their systems and when, and definitely contextual awareness around this access so they can apply strategies like zero trust, for instance. Yeah, I was going to say these are in service of the zero trust idea. And I mean, at what point will they say, well, you have to have micro segmentation, you know, and therefore that every call from every application to every possible database is a micro segment a micro divided segment and it has to have controls in place and so forth, it gets to be a big deal to do. Certainly. And it may be that DOD and NIST start rolling NIST 800-207 on zero trust guidance into these regulations and actually enforcing uh, the assessment and verifying that these controls are in place in such a manner. Uh, But zero trust and these micro segmentation, as it's referred to in industry today, I think is going to be rolled in in short order. Uh, as these controls are in place uh, and a standard or or at least a baseline is founded. So CMMC is in some sense a compliance exercise, but that is only the case alone if you have the technology in place. So I guess my question is, who should be involved in a company in making sure that that contractor is good with CMMC? Well, from a company perspective, certainly at the highest levels, you need adoption. You need the CISO to be involved, particularly, I would say CEOs need to be involved as well uh, to ensure they have executive sponsorship on anything that needs to be funded or efforts that need to be resourced in order to become compliant with CMMC. As we know, this will impact the company's ability to be awarded DOD contracts, and that could be very much their livelihood, depending on the organization's go-to-market strategy. And serving both the commercial side, you know, other companies and federal agencies, who's generally in better shape, CMMC aside, industry or or government, do you think? Loaded question, I guess. 
Well, what I can say is uh, both sides have been focusing on it for quite some time now. Speaking from Fortinet Federal's perspective, small businesses to large businesses have come to us over the past couple of years to help them implement practices that have been called for in the various CMMC levels, once CMMC level one through five, now one through three. And so these controls are taken very seriously by the organizations who feel like the federal government business is important to them. Um, and I would say the DOD, obviously, although small, uh, the CMC PMO office has taken it seriously. Uh, one of the things you can note from the proposed rule was that they're re-emphasizing why this is important. And they have not budged as to why the requirements are what they are. However, they have tried to ease the burdens, if you will, and make the implementation uh, a lot easier for these organizations. And just a final question on small businesses, because if you started a business and you want to get some of that OTA money or whatever the case might be, or FAR you know, contracts, the last thing you want to do is build a complicated IT system. You're going to go with cloud applications and cloud hosting if you're a small business startup. But that doesn't absolve you from worrying about CMMC compliance, does it? No, it does not. And you're right. They do have less complex systems and perhaps uh, maybe only subject to level one. But uh, DOD does estimate that 60,000 small businesses will be subject to level two certified assessments. So uh, that's going to come at a cost. Uh, which DOD estimates to be around $105,000 every three years uh, just for the assessment itself. But from a technology perspective, they have the benefit of modern technology helping them really collapse the infrastructure that's required to implement security controls around CUI and FCI. Felipe Fernandez is Chief Technology Officer at Fortinet Federal. Thanks so much for joining me. It was a pleasure, Todd. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we, uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. 
Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.